Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. We're back after taking a week vacation. We took some time to recharge, approach this last leg of the podcast with full force. We have about two dozen episodes left, so hang in there. We're really just starting to dig into the marrow of this case. And I also want to announce that we've gotten season two of Spoon River Gothic off the ground. It is a highway tale inspired by American concepts of freedom and independence. It's a very intriguing story, and I hope that you will be around to hear it. It'll be live, most likely February 1st. And I look forward to telling you all this story. It should be a really good one. Very intriguing and exciting, as well as sympathetic and empathetic. We really try to reach into the hearts and minds of not only criminals, but victims, and how these incidents can change our ideas and perspective of the world at the drop of a hat, and what it is we can learn from this type of behavior, and at least have empathy for those who need it the most, know how to help those who have experienced unthinkable tragedies in life, things that most of us are fortunate enough will have never experienced. So, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride kept alive by murder. It's a tale reminiscent of Bonnie and Clyde, natural born killers. What happens when our ideals of freedom and independence as Americans reaches those boundaries of darkness where murder and mayhem dwell? I look forward to seeing you then, and here we go. The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 40, Tight-Lipped and Tenacious Date of Occurrence, Evening, Fall, 1989 Weather Conditions, Warm Location of Incident, Canton Lake Area Type of Premise, Rural Object of Attack, Acquaintance The Exact Location of the Offense at the Time of Incident In the car or on the ground. Describe means. Hands. How used. Grab. Spontaneous remarks at scene of the incident. I wanted you to know Donnie's past. Name of victim. Connie K. Wheeler. Narrative. Wheeler came to the Kenton Police Department to say that she had also been battered by Donald Bull. But it was back in the late summer or early fall of 1989. Wheeler said that she and some friends had been drinking at a local tavern when Wheeler and Bull decided to go for a drive. Wheeler said Bull had been a perfect gentleman until she stopped with him out by Canton Lake. Wheeler said Bull asked her to stop so he could use the bathroom. Wheeler said Bull came around to the driver's side as she sat in the car. 
Following four lines of redacted statements blacked out with thick sharpie, Wheeler said nothing happened, that Bull did not succeed in his attempt, and that they came back to Canton. Wheeler said that Bull grabbed the back of her neck and squeezed real hard, trying to get Wheeler to get out of town again, but she refused. Wheeler said she took Bull back to his vehicle and never saw him again. Wheeler wanted a report to help show that Bull had a past history of abusing women. Wheeler said a message could be left on the answering machine. She works the day shift and all the overtime she can, and she would return the call. The following is an interview with Connie K. Wheeler of Beardstown, Illinois. Connie also stays with her boyfriend a lot, whose name is Kevin Barfield, also of Beardstown. This interview is in regard to her knowledge and or relationship with Donald R. Bull. This interview took place in the detective sergeant's office at the Canton Police Department on May 24, 1993 at 14.04 hours and ended at 14.24 hours. Present with me was Ken Kedzer of the Illinois State Police Department of Criminal Investigation. Employment. Connie Wheeler works at Excel Meat Packaging Plant Tuesday through Saturday from 06.30 hours to 14.30 hours. Connie stated that she first met Donald Bull, hereafter referred to as Bull, at a tavern in Canton called The Suburban at 725 West Locust Street. Connie was leaving with a couple of friends of hers named Tanya and Kurt Huff, whom she was with at The Suburban that night. This was sometime in the summer of 1989. Bull had been introduced to Connie, Kurt, and Tanya by a friend, and Bull ended up staying at their table. Bull seemed very polite, and then they all decided to go to another subject by the name of John's house and play cards. Bull rode with Connie because he didn't know the location of where they were heading. Bull left his pickup at the Suburban. The group played cards and drank beer until around 0200 hours, at which time Connie decided to leave. Bull wished to go for a ride with Connie, and she agreed. They rode out by Canton Lake in Connie's vehicle with Connie driving. When they were on a private area of the road, Spelled by the officer, R-O-D-E, Bull requested that Connie stop the vehicle so that he could urinate. Connie stopped the car and shut off the lights and engine. Bull then approached the driver's door and opened it. He then took Connie by the forearm hand area and requested that she come with him to look for something. Again, the following eight lines are redacted by thick black sharpie ink. The report continues on to state, she then felt that she was able to talk her way out of it and got to her feet and back into the driver's seat. Then Bull stood by the vehicle and Connie was unable to shut the door. Bull made several attempts to pull Connie from the vehicle but could not free her hands from the steering wheel. Connie advised that at this time, Bull was getting very rough. Bull finally gave up and got back into the vehicle and headed for town. Connie drove to Bull's cousin's residence on North 12th Avenue but did not stop and then headed back south on 12th Avenue towards Chestnut Street. Upon nearing Chestnut Street, Bull grabbed Connie by the back of the neck and began squeezing very hard and told her to go out to the lake area again. Connie was afraid she was going to be attacked if she complied, so she refused and stated, Go ahead and break my neck if you want, but I'm taking you to your truck. Connie stated that the squeezing was quite painful and she was scared of Bull. Connie delivered Bull back to his truck at the Suburban, where he got out without further incident.
Connie stated that her neck was sore for a couple hours afterward. Connie also told her roommates not to tell Bull where she lived. Connie did not go out to any local taverns for a long time. This was due to the fear, dislike she had toward Bull. Signed, Sergeant David Ayers, Canton Police Department. Forgiveness is not only the way we deal with unforgiveness, as other methods may include retaliation or exacting revenge. Unforgiveness is a delayed response to a transgressor, which has both acute and chronic components. Fear or concern for one's safety may be immediate concerns, while a sense of injustice may develop in the long term. This sense of injustice often stems from a dichotomy between how the victim would prefer the transgression be redressed their subjective view of appropriate redress and compensation, and how it actually is resolved. Some professionals may contend that only those prone to angry rumination will likely experience the more chronic aspects of unforgiveness, possibly because this would excite their growing sense of injustice. This is defined as a self-orientation that leads one to view situations from a self-serving point of view, in contrast to another oriented perspective. Research suggests that unforgiveness may involve a diminished ability to see events from another person's perspective, such as the transgressor, pointing out that many researchers define forgiveness as the antithesis of unforgiveness. So in order to examine the nature of unforgiveness in the literature, one must look beyond the scant material that examines unforgiveness explicitly and establish which negative responses are reduced by the act of forgiving. Several models of forgiveness understand it to involve a reduction in feelings of fear and anger, often coupled with a decrease in other adverse responses to the transgressor, such as blaming, feelings of betrayal, or a desire to seek revenge. A range of transgressions may elicit many diverse reactions from different individuals. So there is a wide selection of potential flavors of unforgiveness, as may be the case with Connie's disposition. In particular, one must consider whether traumatic stress is a feature of unforgiveness. PTSD is a diagnosable mental disorder, and it would seem that to include it as a component of unforgiveness defies the construct as a pathological response. In the case of victims of crime, this assumption may initially seem prerogative, in other words, to have an agenda. Though, according to prior descriptors, this is understandable. However, it is important to remember that under the U.S. Constitution, one is considered innocent until proven guilty. But what does innocent until proven guilty mean exactly? The presumption of innocence is among the most sacred principles in the American court system. The concept of being innocent until proven guilty means that anybody accused of a crime is assumed innocent until the allegations leveled against them are proven. But given inherent biases, can anyone truly be considered innocent until proven guilty? And when pertaining to a separate case, for example that night at Canton Lake, do these character evaluations allow a maintenance of said predetermined innocence the same way one might during a direct investigation into the supposed occurred crime, which is a reference to suggest said evaluation of character? Or do such circumstances allow a certain amount of loophole to sidestep the rule of law, constitutional right, 
Does not the exception prove the rule? Does this allowance of forming within the mind of the investigator a bias prove the rule to be, in certain circumstances, unfree from the determination of guilt without standing before a trial of his peers, who of which, by unison, determines said culpability? Questions to consider No one has ever laid claim that the judicial system is perfect, of course. However, Plausible imperfection shall not be excused for the sake of sacrificing ordained constitutional rights. On the other hand, we are all human, investigators none the lesser. And what is an investigation but an attempt to gather rumor and sort through it for the necessary building blocks to construct a tangled case and in effect an image of culpability? That said, it is the responsibility of you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to as well sort through the jumble of subjectivity and refine the facts in as objective of a form as humanly possible in order to restructure the original investigation in a way that might more clearly define what had actually occurred back in those early years of the 1990s. It is your duty as jury to assess these matters in a way that leads not to a predetermined outcome, but to a destination, in whichever way the facts and answers to questions asked may lead, human tendency aside. The exception proves the rule is a phrase that arises from ignorance, though common to good writers. The original word was previous, which did not mean proves, but tests. In this sense, phrase does not mean that an exception demonstrates a rule to be true or to exist, but that it tests the rule, thereby proving its value. And there is little evidence of the phrase used in this second way. Nonetheless, is the concept of innocent until proven guilty achievable in modern life? Some believe it is doubtful, questioning if justice truly is capable of not peeking out from behind that blind. Presumption of innocence is among the most sacred principles in the American court system. The concept of being innocent until proven guilty means that anybody accused of a crime is assumed innocent until the allegations leveled against them are proven. It squarely places the burden of proof on the government to show that the accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The Fifth Amendment in the United States Constitution guarantees citizens that no one shall be deprived of life, property, or liberty without following the due process of law. The 14th Amendment applies this principle to states in the U.S. broadly, but what of due process? Due process can be described as a legal process in which a criminal suspect is either found guilty or not guilty. The fact that a person has been accused of committing a particular crime doesn't necessarily make them guilty. Due process is a constitutional guarantee that prohibits the government from treating citizens in an unfair manner. Technically, it means that the court must follow all procedural standards that protect the personal freedoms of the people. In other words, due process entails the protections afforded to all citizens, and these protections can be separated into two categories. Protocol due process refers to the requirement of the government to use the stipulated legal process before depriving a person of their life, liberty, or property. 
This includes giving the accused person notice and ensuring they have the opportunity to be heard in front of a neutral judge. The presumption of innocence is regarded as a procedural process. Substantive due process, on the other hand, refers to the rights a person holds, like freedom of speech and freedom to privacy that cannot be infringed by the government without using due process. Due process was incorporated into the Constitution to guarantee fairness by preventing people from receiving cruel punishments or being wrongly convicted. Besides requiring the government to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the presumption of innocence offers various protections that include the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, Sixth Amendment right to a lawyer, Eighth Amendment prohibition against excessive bail, and lastly, the right to not be unjustly detained. But what of the burden of proof? The burden of proof is a legal requirement for determining which party must prove their case is correct. Innocent until proven guilty implies that the prosecution is the party that bears the burden of proof. The prosecution has to present affirmative evidence showing the court that the defendant is guilty of the crime they are being accused of to warrant a conviction. In a criminal case, the prosecution has a duty to prove guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But what are the challenges with upholding the concept of innocent until proven guilty? All accused persons are innocent before the law until proven guilty as I've stated multiple times. Sometimes it's easy to condemn another person without establishing the facts about the allegations. This is why the idea of innocent until proven guilty is entrenched in our constitution. There are many instances where people are charged and sentenced for mistakes or crimes they didn't commit. While the concept appears good on paper, it's not as easy to practice the concept that someone is innocent until they are proven guilty, as many people rush to judge a defendant without interrogating the facts related to the case. Also, the media often plays a significant role in influencing public opinion concerning an accused person. For example, the media can portray the defendant in a way that makes it nearly impossible to believe they're innocent. Such reporting can even influence or sway the decision of judges and juries. No matter how guilty a person appears to be, it is important to follow due process and establish all facts about the allegations before making a decision. And in following such due process, the investigators on the case speak to as many people as they can, homing in on those individuals they feel may harbor the most relevant knowledge. But what is to stop investigators from subjectifying the investigation by speaking directly with those only with a tarnished word to speak in terms of defining the character profile of a suspect? Nothing as far as I can see. Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, a great investigator no doubt, spoke with Rochelle Hillmeyer once again on March 31, 1993. Had he nonetheless been guided by an unconscious bias, regardless if he honestly sought where the crumb trail might lead, as he arrived at her door on South 2nd Avenue, on the south end of South Park, just a couple odd blocks and across a set of rusty tracks to the south, from the home where the charred remains of Donna and her daughter Justine had been found in the burnt-down apartment on that frigid morning of January the 13th, 1993. 
The morning after the card game Donnie Bull had hosted at Rochelle's home that evening, the evening prior. Donnie's girlfriend at the time, Rochelle, told the agent that she had first become associated with Donnie in October of 92, repeating much of the supposed facts already gathered. The agent most likely in search of contradictory statements, which is in fact a merit owed to the thoroughness of the investigative tactics of the agent of criminal investigation. Rochelle said that she eventually started dating Donnie after he began storing some of his belongings in her basement, and that during this time, Donnie had been having trouble affording the apartment he had been living in on Locust Street in Canton. Rochelle elaborated by stating that Donnie was also having difficulty paying child support, as well as other payments. She told Agent Kedzer, who listened attentively, that Donnie started coming over more frequently in January, and eventually started spending nights with her. She recalled that Donnie moved out of his apartment on Locust and moved in with her sometime in early January of 93. Rochelle said that Wright's Furniture employed Donnie at the time, and that he worked from 7.30am until around 4pm, Monday through Friday from 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 on Saturdays. She added that Donnie usually left for work around 7.20 a.m., and according to Rochelle, Donnie started going to work later and later, eventually only leaving for work at 7.45 a.m., usually borrowing her bicycle to get downtown. Rochelle said that Donnie owned a red Volkswagen Beetle, which he never drove, and that the vehicle was still at her residence, where Donnie had parked it the day he had moved in and she added that Donnie had borrowed her car to go to work on one or two occasions when the weather was bad. Rochelle told the agent that Donnie was very good to her and her children, and that Donnie gave no outward indication of a violent streak, characterizing Donnie as having a calm and composed nature. She did mention, however, that Donnie could become rowdy if he were drinking, especially in recent months, as he had begun to drink more and more. She said that on one occasion, Donnie would say he was leaving to go get cigarettes, but would end up drinking at a bar. Rochelle said that Donnie would often take shots of hard liquor, and was also drinking more significant quantities of alcohol at home. He was often staying out too late at night and having trouble getting up to go to work the following day. She recalled that Donnie sometimes displayed memory problems after drinking a great deal, as he would often black out. Agent Kedger then asked Rochelle about her sex life with Donnie and she stated that she and Donnie never had much of one together during their cohabitation. She blamed this problem on Donnie, and she elaborated by saying that Donnie did not have a strong sex drive. According to her, this problem was essentially evident within the last two months, and Donnie would only become affectionate or interested in sex at all if he were essentially drunk. She said that Donnie otherwise showed little to no interest in sexual activities, even if she was the aggressor. Rochelle claimed that she did not characterize sex with Donnie as being rough, noting that it was never kinky or anything like that. And she further stated that Donnie showed more affection toward her granddaughter and the family cat than he did toward her. Rochelle said that during their period living together, Donnie never contributed any money or helped out in any way by paying bills or any other expenses, but that this did not really bother her as she was aware Donnie was not making good money at his job. However, when asked, she said she did not know exactly what Donnie's wages were, but that she did not think he made much more than minimum wage. 
She told Agent Ketzer that she knew Donnie was indeed familiar with Donna Tompkins, and elaborated by advising that she was aware that Donnie had sold Donna a couch. But she was unsure if Donna knew any other employees at Wright's Furniture in Canton when asked. But Rochelle did recall, however, that Donnie had spoken with police about his selling the couch to Donna, and that police had spoken with him after the fire. She said that Donnie told her the police were interested in the sale of the couch and the transfer of the key and money for the sofa. She said that Donnie told her he left the key in the mailbox at Donna's apartment after the delivery, and that no, she did not believe Donnie had known Donna for very long at all before her death. Rochelle mentioned that Donnie had told her that Donna telephoned Wright's furniture for him before her death, and he also said to her that he was not at the store when she called. But when asked, she stated that she had no idea why Donna might have been trying to get a hold of Donnie at the store. Rochelle said that Donnie spoke about the fire on at least one occasion, and that according to her, Donnie stated that the fire was tragic, and that two people, including a small child, had been killed. She said that Donnie had gotten upset with his friend and co-worker Mike Price for making crude comments about the possible condition of Donna Tompkins' body, and that Donnie had elaborated to her that Mike was joking about the fact that Donna's vagina would have been all burnt up. Donnie did not think that was funny at all, she said. Rochelle then told Agent Ketzer that she was unaware if Donnie ever received payment from Donna for the couch, and stated that she knew Donnie had a problem with people owing him money. She advised that on one occasion, Donnie loaned Mary Finley an unknown sum, and that she and Donnie had been driving in Canton with Mike Price when they saw Mary. She said it was near Harper's gas station, and Donnie stopped the car, jumped out, and began berating Mary about the money she owed him. It was a bad scene, she said, adding that Mary may have had another incident involving Donnie in the past. Rochelle said that on the evening of January 12th, a few people had been drinking beer and playing cards at her and Donnie's home, repeating much of what had already been well documented. Rochelle stated that after the evening of playing cards and dice, sometime around 12 midnight and 2.30 a.m., after most of the individuals had left, Donnie had asked to borrow her car to take David Nell home, adding that at this time only, Donnie herself, David Nell, and her children were at the residence. Rochelle told Agent Kedzer that upon Donnie's return home, she again noted that she had noticed he was limping as he entered the house, and that Donnie had stated that he had taken David home and stayed in the driveway for a time talking to him at David's home. She added that Donnie usually drives east on Oak Street to Fifth Avenue to Walnut Street to go to David's, that Donnie said he eventually left David's and that the car broke down near Bork Salvage Yard on 2nd Avenue, a block east behind Donna's apartment, it should be mentioned, and just a few blocks south of Rochelle's. Rochelle said that she thought it was strange that Donnie would have been near Bork's, as it is not located in the direction of travel Donnie would have taken from David's home to her own. She said that Donnie told her that Jack had slipped out from under the car, which hurt his leg, and that when she asked to see any injury to his leg, she could not see any noticeable wound. Donnie had also mentioned that during the course of the early morning hours, someone had approached the car to see if he needed any help, or if he needed someone to call the police. Donnie said he did not need help and eventually fell asleep in the car, and that upon waking, he drove the car to the gas station located at West Locust Street in Canton to have a tire repaired. And Rochelle stated when asked that she did not feel as if Donnie had been drinking immediately before returning home that morning. It is important to note what was not mentioned, 
that Donnie had spent an hour or so chatting with Jeff Bennett that morning, whom, according to his own version of events, in a previously aired episode with us, that in the early morning hours of January the 13th, Donnie had stopped in for coffee and to shoot the shit, per se. This event would have occurred at the time Trust Officer David Haynes, Donna's boss, had arrived at the scene of the fire, and at the exact moment, Fire Marshal Anderson had reported the fire ignited, loosely between 8.30 and 9.30 a.m., to be exact, according to the marshal, between 9.15 and 9.30 a.m. He was in there for a good hour, stated Bennett, about Donnie being at the gas station. But according to Rochelle, Donnie had never made any mention of this event of shooting the shit with Jeff, manager of the USCO station on South 5th Avenue, on the east side of town. The closest gas station to Bork's scrapyard would have been the USCO station, merely two blocks to the west and just down the alley from Donnie's apartment. It is equally important to note that the Phillips 66 station, where Donnie had all four tires replaced sometime that day, January the 13th, sat on Locust Street on the far west side of town, the exact opposite of where Jeff was serving up coffee to early rising folks, and a good jog at that. So make of that what you will. Rochelle went on to state that Donnie showed her a supposed injured leg in the bathroom of her home, and that he also showed her some red spots on his jacket that morning, stating he had gotten blood on his coat changing the tire. Donnie subsequently told Rochelle that it might actually be transmission fluid instead of blood, and after she had inspected Donnie's leg, he removed his jacket and immediately dropped it in the washing machine. Rochelle further recalled that Donnie had washed the same coat several times since that morning. She advised that this jacket was the same one he wore when the Fulton County Sheriff's Department arrested him. When asked by Agent Kedzer, Rochelle said no. She had not detected any odor of gas on Donnie's clothing or person that morning. And it should also be noted that during a conversation with me, Rochelle mentioned that Donnie arrived home with wet hair, like he had been cleanly bathed, a sink shower in the least. However, however, these comments were never made to any investigator. She further advised that she had noticed no cuts on his hands, neck, or face that morning, and she recalled that Donnie kept limping until sometime the following day. She then stated that Donnie had mentioned to her that he had seen smoke and that he thought there was a fire somewhere down the street from the home they shared. Rochelle recalled that shortly after Donnie made this statement, they had heard sirens and other emergency vehicle traffic in the neighborhood. Rochelle said that Donnie did not go to work that morning, and then after throwing the jacket in the machine, he returned to the bedroom to sleep for a while. And when asked, she described the jacket as being a winter coat with a hood. Elastic waist, black, made of shirt cloth type material. Rousseau further elaborated that the jacket zipped up the front. Rochelle said that the car did indeed have a jack and other tools in the trunk, but that she does not carry a gas can or similar object in her vehicle, and that to her knowledge, the only gas container she has was a plastic jug which she used to store lawnmower fuel in, and that the container was still in the home.
Rochelle told Agent Kadzer that on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1993, Donnie was involved in a hit-and-run accident at Harper's gas station in Canton, and that upon Donnie arriving home, she had noticed a dent in her car. But Donnie stated that the vehicle had gotten a flat tire, and the jack slipped out while he attempted to change the tire, stating that this was what caused the damage to the car. Rochelle told the agent that it wasn't until later that she eventually confronted Donnie with the tire-changing story, and that Donnie admitted the truth and that she did not know whether to believe Donnie or not about any stories concerning changing tires. Rochelle subsequently produced a gold ring with yellow and amber stones, which she said had belonged to Donnie. She noted that Donnie had shown her the ring about two months ago, further stating that she first saw the ring in his possession sometime after the Tompkins fire. And when asked, Rochelle said Donnie never told her where he had obtained the ring, only that he might try to sell it to make some money. Special Agent Kedzer completed the evidence inventory and receipt for the ring and provided Rochelle with a copy, and the interview concluded. Agent Kedzer next spoke with Misty Pratt, the daughter of Rochelle Hillmeyer, whom had lived with her mother and Donnie Bull at the same address. Misty told the agent that she had never had any problems with Donnie and described him as a nice guy, but that she recalled that Donnie would get weird when he had been drinking. When asked, Misty could not explain what she meant by Donnie becoming weird, but mentioned that when intoxicated, he would mumble a great deal and become incoherent. Misty remembered that Donnie and David Nell had been drinking at the home on one occasion. According to her, Donnie and David had been listening to music from a portable radio in the kitchen, and that it had been playing extremely loud. When she attempted to turn down the volume, Donnie grabbed her on the left forearm above the wrist and continued to squeeze in an incredibly strong grip. Misty said that it felt as if Donnie intended to hurt her, until David eventually told Donnie to let her go, which Donnie did. Misty then recalled that there had been a party at the home the evening before the Tompkins fire, but she failed to remember any specific individuals who may or may not have been there that evening. Misty said that she was at home on the morning of January the 13th, stating that she was present when Donnie returned home around 8.30 or 9 a.m. with the car. She said that her grandmother had been there before Donnie's arrival, but had taken one of her sisters to school and was not present when Donnie arrived. Misty said that her mother, Rochelle, had been somewhat upset with Donnie as he had not yet returned with her car or come home at all that evening after taking David Nell home. She recalled that when David arrived and entered the house, Donnie mentioned something about a place being on fire down the street and that a short time later they heard sirens. Misty relayed that upon entering the home, Donnie and her mother went into the bedroom and that soon after Donnie exited the room with his coat in his hands, which he placed in the washing machine. She also recalled that Donnie stated something to the effect that his jacket had some transmission fluid on it, and that he then returned to the bedroom. Misty could not remember Donnie ever talking about Donna Tompkins when asked, before or after the fire, but that, however, she did remember Donnie joking about the fact that the FBI had talked to him about the death of her and her daughter. Misty mentioned that a conversation with one of her sister's boyfriends referred to the fire, stating that Brile Clear had been dating her sister Jennifer. According to Brile, Donnie had confessed to him that he had killed Donna and her three-year-old, and that he had told her this in late January or early February, but that she did not know whether to believe Brian or not, and that perhaps Donnie had only been trying to scare Brian. And Misty said, when asked by Agent Kedzer, that Donnie had given her mother a necklace as a Christmas gift, and that she recalled Donnie giving it to her mother around two days before Christmas. Misty then exited the room, and Jennifer Pratt entered and sat down with Agent Ketzer. 
Jennifer said that she had also lived with her mother and Donnie at the home, but did not care for Donnie and did not like him living there. Elaborating by stating that Donnie drank too much and constantly had his friends over to visit, she said they would play loud music and get rowdy and unruly when they drank. But when asked, Jennifer noted that Donnie had not done anything in particular to have caused these feelings. But she did say that on several occasions, she noticed Donnie staring at her, which made her uncomfortable, stating she usually tried to avoid Donnie when he had been drinking. Jennifer also said that she could recall several individuals being at home the evening before the fire, stating that Donnie, her mother, David Nell, herself, and her other boyfriend, Eric Pig, and possibly Ron Nell and Richard Ledger may have been there at the residence that evening. Jennifer told the agent that she had also been present the following morning when Donnie returned home. She said that her boyfriend, Eric, had also gotten up early that morning as they planned to go to Peoria for a shopping trip. Jennifer said that to the best of her knowledge, Donnie returned home sometime between 8 and 8.30 a.m., and that Donnie had made the statement that he had either wrecked the car or had a flat tire on the car and spent the night somewhere other than the residence. She further recalled that Donnie said there was a fire by the Wareco station in town, but stated that she did not recall seeing any smoke or hearing any sirens that morning. Misty told Agent Kezer that she could neither recall Donnie talking about the fire other than saying that he knew Donald Tompkins. Misty then mentioned when asked to clarify, that she had in fact dated Brile Clear in the past, and that to her knowledge, Brile was currently living with his aunt in Pekin, but that she could not recall Brile ever telling her about any statements Donnie may have made concerning the fire or death of Donald Tompkins. And she stated additionally, confirming that Donnie had in fact given her mother a necklace on Christmas Eve in 92. A day later, Special Agent Kedzer traveled to Pekin, Illinois to speak with Brio Clear at his aunt's home. Brio told the agent that he is indeed friends with Misty and Jennifer Pratt, stating that he first became acquainted with the Pratts and their mother Rochelle when they lived in Vermont, Illinois. He mentioned that he had visited with the Pratt girls since they moved to South 2nd Avenue in Canton, and that yes, he was familiar with Donnie Bull, who had been living with Rochelle and her daughters at the time. And he said he had visited with the Pratt girls on two or three occasions since Donnie had been living there. Burrell said that he was aware of the fire in Kent, which had killed the two individuals, and that he had been at the Hillmeyer Pratt home around two days before the fire, and that several individuals had been visiting with Donnie that evening. He said that Rochelle, a stocky white guy with a beard and another white guy with long dark hair and a beard, had also been at the home that evening. He added when asked that the guy with the long hair might have been David now, stating that the guys were drinking beer and playing cards in the kitchen. But Burrell noted that he did not feel this was the evening before the fire at the Tompkins residence. Bryle then told Agent Kedzer he had also been at the home around five or six days after the fire, speculating that it would have been a Friday or Saturday evening, and that it was at that time he had the conversation with Donnie about the fire. He recalled Donnie stating that the police had talked to him, but that Donnie stated they didn't have anything on me. Bryle stated that Donnie said they were talking to everyone who knew Donna, 
However, this conversation with Donnie frightened him because he took the statement, they don't have anything on me, to suggest that Donnie supposedly had been responsible for their deaths. He then advised that that was the last time he was at the home because he was, quote, scared shitless of Donnie. Brian recalled that Donnie had stated he and a friend of his had delivered a couch to the girl who had died. Brian said that he had recently been incarcerated at the Fulton County Jail for an unrelated burglary, that he had served time from March 22nd to March 28th, and that he could recall during this time that he again had a conversation with Donnie when he was locked up. Brian said that he could remember Donnie commenting that the police had talked over 200 people about the murders, and that Donnie further stated that the police think he did the crime. According to Brian, Donnie also mentioned that he had only met Donna Tompkins once, and that that was at a bar in Canton. But Donnie said he did not know the little girl who had died in the fire. Special Agent Kedzer made his way back to the Kenton Police Department to speak with Eric Pig, the now ex-boyfriend of Jennifer Pratt. He mentioned that he had been dating Jennifer during the time in which Jennifer, her mother, and Rochelle were living with Donnie on South 2nd Avenue. Eric said that to his knowledge, Donnie was a decent guy, but that Donnie would get a bit unusual when he had been drinking a lot. He elaborated by stating that Donnie would mumble and ramble on about obscure subjects, and he could barely understand what he was saying. And Eric said to his knowledge, Rochelle and the Pratt girls had no problems with Donnie, other than the incident in which Donnie had allegedly grabbed Misty by the arm because she wanted to turn down the radio. Eric added that he was not present, but had heard it from Jennifer. Eric then told the agent that he was in fact present at the Hillmeyer Pratt home the evening before the Tompkins fire, stating that some friends of Donnie's were there as well, drinking beer and playing cards in the kitchen. He said that a friend of Donnie named Dave was also there, and that there could have been others, in and out, as he had stayed the night there with Jennifer. Eric said that when he went to bed, he thought that Dave and Donnie had left together, but stated that he could not recall exactly when he had went to bed or when Dave and Donnie would have left. Eric advised the agent that he got up early the following day to go shopping with Jennifer in Peoria, stating that he recalled Rochelle complaining that Donnie had not brought her car home yet. He said that Donnie still had not returned home when he got up that morning to get ready, but he could not recall when asked if Donnie had arrived home before he and Jennifer left for Peoria or not. However, Eric stated, they traveled northbound on 2nd Avenue, which I might add, given the incredibly icy road conditions, would have been a horrible day to travel the 45 miles to Peoria on country highways, that they had observed fire trucks at the Tompkins resident. He also added that he and Jennifer returned from Peoria around 1 or 2 p.m., and that at that time, Donnie had told him he knew the woman that had been killed in the fire. Eric said that Donnie stated he and a friend had delivered a couch to the apartment and that Donnie said he had a friend who had once dated Donna Tompkins, who had met Donna at the Elks Club in Canton. Eric also told the agent that he had been at the home on one occasion since that day, stating that he could not recall when these visits precisely may have occurred and neither could he remember a conversation with Donnie in which he seemed interested in the investigation of the fire or the deaths. However, he did cite another occasion in which Donnie stated he was questioned by the feds. April 17, 1993. Headlines across central Illinois read, Inquest fails to part veil of mystery in two killings. Police tight-lipped about deaths of mom, daughter, before Blaze. Lewistown. 
A coroner's inquest Friday shed no further light on the mysterious deaths of Donna and Justine Tompkins of Canton, killed before their home was set ablaze in January. Asked outside the inquest what potential death cases remain, Fulton County Coroner Rod Pavley said, There are several possibilities we are looking at, but we are not at liberty to discuss. And Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner declined to discuss these possibilities, other than saying investigators have four or five theories about the killings. Ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with a quote by a great German mathematician. A false conclusion once arrived at, and widely accepted, is not easily dislodged. And the less it is understood, the more tenaciously it is held. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.